how was what for many of you is your first day of silent retreat that you've ever done for a good number of people here? What have you seen? What has stood out? What has been the markers for you? Was it easy? Was it difficult? Was it both of those? Not to underestimate the courage that it can take, actually, to stop, to sit, to enter into a very, very simple form. The courage that it takes, because what we see when we enter into a simple form such as this is that we see our mind. And that isn't always easy. That isn't always easy. Yet there's so much talk of simplicity. Sometimes when we turn the heart towards a particular quality, so in this case towards simplicity, we turn the mind towards simplicity, we orient around simplicity, we have practices that are very simple. Sometimes what comes up for us is everything that appears to be in the way of simplicity. Right? You orient your heart in a particular direction and what you see sometimes is the opposite. <coughs> so I wonder if that's been the case for any of you today. You may not have realized the extent of our weaving of complexity or knottiness or thorniness or trickiness. <coughs> the levels at which it's hard to be simple may not have struck us so much before. Again, this is not bad news. It's, it's very much the case when we turn the heart in a particular direction, all that seems to be in the way will present itself. Not as a nasty cosmic joke, but because in orienting that way, that which needs to be liberated, that which um, is as yet is stuck or is unliberated, starts to have the space, starts to get the message, we could say, that there's space for that to start to move through. But learning how to be with that complexity is very difficult, whether it's that you notice, notice mind states of aversion or desire, or weaving stories or judgments or criticism. A friend of mine who many of you know, who's a senior teacher now in this tradition, Shada Rogel, she tells of her first weekend meditation retreat where, again, coming with the expectations you enter such a beautiful environment, you know, lovely people, lovely weather, lovely intention, you know, lovely practice, should be fine. But what she saw was her mind and that wasn't fine. That was actually very difficult. And one of the things she said she noticed was that she started to see that she was doing something she used to do as a, as a child when things got difficult. She'd be on this meditation retreat for that whole first Saturday. She kept finding herself, taking herself off to the toilet and locking herself in and just staying there. Right, because that's what she used to do when things were difficult. And after a while it dawned on her, oh look, wow, I'm doing the same thing. And what she realized the beauty of the retreat offered, as painful as it is to see that at times, it offered that boundary where we realized there isn't actually an escape from that. 
actually going to the bathroom and locking herself in, she's still there, same mind, same complexity, same trouble. But it offered a way to start to see and to face that, to actually feel into that, sense into that, make space for that, recognize it, acknowledge it. This is difficult. <coughs> this is hard at times. She also reports coming into the meditation hall during the work period. And a couple of her friends who were very experienced meditators had been doing it for many years. They were sitting when they didn't need to be sitting. I was sitting during the work period and she was so angry. So angry. It wasn't their work period. They weren't skipping their work period. They just wanted to sit. She couldn't understand it, knowing how difficult it was for her. She said all this rage, all this anger arose in the heart. So it's amazing what can trigger things off for us, to really not underestimate that and to not belittle that, neither to believe the stories necessarily, and neither to belittle the fact that when we stop, we see what's there. We see what's there. So, on some level, the world appears very complex to us. You know, there are infinite number of different experiences we could have, of different mind states we can experience, different feelings, different tastes, different touches. Looking at it from that point of view, the world appears very multiplicitous. Is that the right word? Multi, multiplicitous, is that right? Multiplicitous? In multiplicity. The world appears in multiplicity. And when we're trying to sort through that and sift through that, things get very complicated. We come to practice, we stop, we simplify. And we can consider, you know, at a very basic level, when we drop down into the simplicity of this being, on some level we're really not that complicated. We're really not that complex. All of us, without exception, want to be happy. All of us, don't want to be hurt. It's very simple. And then we go about ways of trying to achieve that, which aren't always successful. We go about it in a particular way. But at that heart, it's very, very simple. We're really not so different. We appear very, very different, complex. But at that very basic level, we're very simple. We're sensitive to hurt, and we desire for well-being. We even hear that the path to see this, to understand this, is simple. There's a beautiful piece from <coughs> uh, Ajahn Chah, who was a Thai forest master. And his teachings were very, very simple. And he says this, he says, the heart of this path is so simple, no need for long explanations. And then he praises it for us. He says, give up clinging to love and hate. Just rest with things as they are. That is all I do in my own practice. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not become a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing. 
resist nothing. Of course, there are dozens of techniques to develop all kinds of uh, samadhi and vipassana, but it all comes back to this. Just let it be. Step over here where it is cool, out of the battle. Why not give it a try? Do you dare? Step over here where it's cool, out of the battle. Why not give it a try? Do you dare? Our basic nature is simple. Supposedly the path is simple. And the Buddha even talked about experience itself being very simple. He pared it back down to the very simplicity of what is happening in any experience. And he says it comes down to six different things. He says your experience will either be visual through the eye, and it's just that. Be through the ears, through hearing, through taste, through touch, through smell. And the sixth sense in the tradition is the mind, the thinking, the images, the, the, the mind states, that which passes through the mind. That's it. All your experiences will come through one of those sense doors, like little open doors. And the experience just comes, and at a very basic level, it's very simple. It's just that. You know, that teaching I was mentioning earlier during the Sultana meditation, the teaching where he said, in the seeing, just the seeing, in the hearing, just the hearing, in the cognizing, i.e. what's thought about, just the cognizing, this bare simplicity, not adding anything, not taking anything away, that's what's there. And yet, it becomes really difficult for us. And that's what we're interested to see. (coughs) He said of those six experiences that you'll have, they'll show up in one of three ways, guaranteed. Of those experiences you see through the eye, the ear, etc., will be either pleasant, or they'll be unpleasant, or they'll be neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Guaranteed, any experience you've had today will have been pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And sometimes when I used to hear this from my teachers, pared down to this simplicity, I would feel this horror. Is that it? Are you telling me that's all I am? You know, surely I'm a little bit more interesting than that. Surely there's more to this human life than that. But at that very experience of contact, which is happening moment by moment to moment, it's just this. Would you have signed up for the weekend if you had known? Simplicity and depth, guaranteed every moment will be either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, without exception. So why is it so difficult for us? What happens from that moment of contact with experience, which is happening moment by moment, the sights, the sounds, the taste, the feeling, the tangible sense, the mind? What happens that it becomes so complex? 
as well as this simplicity is well documented in the teachings this lovely concept of papancha papancha is a marvellous word in Pali language the language that the teachings have come to us in and papancha is this tendency that we all have of making much of something now it's very important when I dis- as I describe this experience of papancha not to take it on by way of judging ourselves we do this because we don't see clearly we do it because we don't understand the basic nature of things and this papancha occurs so we have a contact a thought or a sensation or a sight or a sound or a touch or a smell and in a way we bounce off it we bounce off and make something of it you may have noticed it with the sultanas today whatever it might be, simple sultana there it is, we're looking at it sometimes there's the simplicity of bare attention and sometimes sultana, so what? You know, I've seen a million sultanas, or I hate sultanas. Why is she making us do it with sultanas? You know, why couldn't she have chosen grapes? Or, you know, we could see a whole papancha start to take shape. And as that story, one thought leads to another, and it builds and builds, we start to experience ourselves, in a way, inside this bubble of this thinking, inside the story. And it can lead us invariably into trouble. There's a story I'd like to read (coughs) of a true story that was printed in the California newspapers some years ago. The story of Larry, who all his life had wanted to fly an aircraft, or fly, in fact. Simple thought, simple wish, simple love, we could say, that he had. Ever since childhood, Larry had wanted to fly. He thought, I want to fly. Again and again, he thought, I want to fly. So he decided to be a pilot. When he was old enough, he joined the Air Force, but sadly his eyesight was not 20-20. So he couldn't be a pilot. He became a mechanic instead, working on the planes. But always the thought would come, I want to fly. Then one day, Larry had an idea. He went to the Army surplus store and he bought some large weather balloons and some tanks of helium. He tied the balloons to the lawn chair and he tied the chair to his jeep. Then he inflated the balloons with the helium. He made a packed lunch and he bought his air rifle with him. His plan was to float 30 to 40 feet above his garden and shoot the balloons down one by one when he wanted to come down. He strapped himself to his chair and he cut the rope, tying the chair to his jeep. He began to rise. But after 30 feet, he didn't stop. He kept rising. 50 feet, 100 feet, 1,000 feet, 5,000 feet. And he didn't didn't stop until he was over 10,000 feet up. It was cold. And he was so frightened, he couldn't shoot any of the balloons. And he was so high up that his packed lunch began to freeze. He began to drift, and eventually he drifted into Los Angeles Air Force uh, space, airspace, and he was picked up on the radar as a UFO. (laughs) They sent a fighter up to check out the pilot, 
So they, they set a fighter up to check him out and the pilot reported seeing a man in a deck chair <laughs> armed with a rifle at one uh, 10,000 feet. <laughs> After determining that Larry was not dangerous, a helicopter was sent up to rescue him. When he was brought down safely, he was arrested for violating federal airspace. In a way, we're not so different. It may not be that we've ended up floating up there, but have you ended up floating up there today? In a way, living through a kind of mind-created bubble at times. We experience these in our mind and we see through them and it seems and feels intensely real. So there's the humour that sees that process and there's also the willingness to come close. To, cl- to come close is to meet it, to see the pain in it, to see the suffering in it, to see the unsatisfactoriness of it. Holding those two together, coming close to realise in a way that there's an act of great compassion to ourselves to drop the balloons, we could say, to come back down to earth, to come back to simplicity where the life really does bubble up in us. Because invariably, even if the balloon world that we create is the most, fits our dreams and desires the most, even then, even then, it too is subject to changing, to shifting, to moving, to changing from what it is into something else. The nature of all that experience of shifting, of changing, of moving. In a way, it's a compassionate response to come to practice compassionate response to come back to simplicity. Something about waking up to that ordinariness at times and yet transforming the relationship to it. We make much of. Have you had any experiences that we make that you make much of today? <coughs> This papancha can be really simple things, you know. Walking through the corridor, somebody looks at us, somebody smiles at us strangely in the dining room, and we think, what does it mean? You know, why did they do that? Do they like me? Do they hate me? You know, what do they want? Or maybe we're not so suspicious, and we might think, oh, great, you know, nice person. Maybe if I speak to them on Sunday at five, then we can, you know go off and have tea and cake and whatever it might be, making much of something, the simple contact. What is it like when we receive the simple contact of experience and let it be that simple? How was it with the sultanas today? What was it like to be that simple? It's not easy, right? It's not easy. Maybe that what arose for us is not being able to see any connection between how 
eating sultanas can possibly help with suffering. How eating sultanas with mindful attention can possibly help me sort out my mind, my heart, my being, sort out this world. The relationship between eating sultanas with bare attention and the suffering of this world is quite clear. Because in coming to be willing to meet something so simple, we see our mind. And it's in our mind that the suffering of this world begins. The inner suffering of our own mental anguish. And the outer suffering we see, the exploitation, the oppression, it begins in the mind. It doesn't begin somewhere else. There is a beautiful um, man, Mahagosananda, the patriarch of Cambodia, does a lot of work for peace and was on a circuit of giving talks at um, landmine land uh, eradication, taking out landmines, and all the support for the program of taking away the landmines that are planted in the world. And he said, yes, very good work, very good work. He said, and first we need to we need to unpick the landmines of our heart because the landmines in this ground don't begin anywhere else than in the heart of human beings than in the mind. So coming to meet with their attention is to do a service of starting to be willing to have the courage to see this mind, to see what arose in it, to make space for that in a way to let that start to be liberated, to let those beings that we see in us, you know, the aversion, the desire, the disappointment, the grief, the jealousy, the anger, the hatred, the rage, the unworthiness, all those beings, we could say, making space for them to be seen and to be liberated knowing them, meeting them clearly. Also important to see where the simplicity is difficult for us. So what is it about the bare attention that's so hard at times? I remember for myself receiving that teaching of bare attention and going outside to practice Okay, so the teaching says in the seeing, just the seeing. So I went and stood outside with one of the trees at a guy house. When there used to be a, a little guy house in another village across the way in Denbury. Stood outside with a tree. Okay, seeing. Letting the sight come to us. Just the seeing. So just the tree bark, the texture, the colour. Yeah. That's nice, I thought. Lovely. And I got bored, walked off. So what? The tree bark. Nothing special. You know, in just one moment it was interesting. Yeah, I saw it in a kind of a new way. It stood out a little bit. And I was bored, wandered off. But because again of the beauty of the form of practice, seeing well, what is that? What, what's boring about that? And just being asking that question, this voice arose from the depths. Well, there's nothing in it for me nothing in this for me, just being with things in that simple way. Can't really get my teeth into it and wrestle with it and tussle with it and 
work with it. I don't become anything special when I'm with the tree. There's a kind of a way that it wasn't enough. There's a sense it's not enough. Seeing that hungry mind that arises, it's not enough to be here with this simplicity. And when it's not enough, again, the contact isn't enough, we're propelled to keep searching. And we keep searching and we keep searching. It's not this, it's not this experience of tree or sultana or meditation or guy house, so it must be somewhere else. And again, we're propelled to keep searching. We start moving on that wheel called in the tradition samsara. We keep spinning, looking for the next thing that might do it for me. The next experience, the next retreat, you know, the next meal, the next meditation, the next moment even. Maybe the next breath will do it for me. You know. But does it? Does it really do it for you? How many experiences have you had in your lifetime? How could we quantify that? I have no idea. Millions, billions. <coughs> Has any one of them really done it for us? Been that place where we can really finally come to rest and just breathe out and give up the search, in a way. a shocking waking up that happens for us when we realize that even the most fabulous experience won't really be that place I can finally come to rest. Because if we hang around long enough in this world or with this practice or with looking deeply, we see that that too is going to change. Very marvelous metaphor from the Buddha in that now, in, in the story of his journey, where he, when he, he left the palace, <coughs> and he started to explore meditation, and he was a, a good meditator, we could say. And he, he had some capacity for concentration. And he very easily started to access what was available in terms of interesting mind states, depth, um, spaciousness, ease, lightness, bliss, realms of the most uh, ethereal qualities that are available to the human mind. Beautiful, lovely, heavenly, and nourishing. Beautiful, not to be underestimated. But he also realized as they changed, as he moved out of them, that that really wasn't the final resting place. It wasn't the final goal. It wasn't the place he could say, yeah, home, home and dry, and done my work. And it was seeing that, that even those heavenly experiences weren't going to be what did it for him. The story I like to read recently, um, One day, Issa saw some people sitting miserably by the roadside. He asked, what is your affliction? They said, we have become like this through our fear of hell. He went on his way and he saw a number of people grouped disconsolately in various postures by the wayside. He said, 
What is your affliction? They said, Desire for paradise has made us like this. He went on his way until he came to a third group of people. They looked like people who had endured much, but their faces shone with joy. Isa asked them, What has made you like this? They answered, The spirit of truth. We have seen reality, and this has made us oblivious to lesser gods. Isa said, These are the people who attain. So that desire for paradise, or the desire for the experience that will do it for me, and consequently coming together with that is the fear of the difficult, the fear of the painful, the fear of the more problematic aspects. Both of these, in a way, set up that duality of mind of seeking for this and rejecting that, seeking for this and rejecting that. Have you seen any of that today? Again, seeing this is not problematic. Seeing this is the beginning of the liberation. So being really clear that we see this, what we see, we're really grasping after something. It might be that we're dying for the bell to go at the end of a sitting. We're kind of leaning forward. Please, once she rings the bell, then, then I can relax. Then I can be happy. Then I can give up my struggle. And miraculously, the bell goes, and ah, okay, no problem. What's changed? What's shifted in that moment? You know, when we're struggling to when the bell goes, when it's okay. Same mind, same body, what's actually shifted? While we think the answer will be found in getting the right experience or the right flat or the right job or the right mind state or the right partner or the right clothes or the right body or the right meditation, while we're still in that search, things are very, very complex. I've recently met somebody who I knew briefly and he said, oh, hi, how's your flat? And I said, oh, my flat's very lovely. My flat's really lovely. I said, but I think I really need a garden. I think if I just had a small garden where I could go out of the door and have my cup of tea, I think then, you know, then, I wouldn't really ask for anything more from my house. And then I'd be happy. And I said to him, do you think that would do it for me? Do you think that would do it once I get this small garden? And he said, nope. Mm-hmm. Nope. He's never been near a meditation cushion. It's a very natural wisdom. No, that seeking, that process of seeking for just this, then it will do it for me, is endless. It's endless. And it's a real compassion to ourselves to explore when that comes to stop, to explore the settling in, the landing. And we're no longer being a hitchhiker. Sometimes it's like we're a hitchhiker through our life, now waiting to get to the next place. Stopping sticking our thumb out, stop camping in our life and land. Really land here. Moving through what arises when we enter into simplicity, the pockets of undigested material, we could say. The places of pain or distress that have not been experienced 
in us. Taking care with that, support for that, the compassion that arises through contact with that. And yet there's something about going through that, like the people whose faces shone with joy. Something about the truth, something about settling into that, that breaks open that duality of seeking for heaven and pushing away hell. Where we're spinning endlessly and endlessly. There's um, a lovely poem from Sing Sun, The Mind of Absolute Trust. I'll read the first bit. He says, The great way isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. <laughs> small, a small task for us. Doesn't mean we don't have preferences, right? Here's the difference there. It's not that we're abandoning that human. Of course we want to be well. Of course we don't like what's difficult on some level. But it's that unhooking from the believing that that's what's going to make the difference. Because the great way isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion and everything will be perfectly clear. When you cling to a hairbreadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. The struggle between good and evil is the primal disease of the mind. Not grasping the deeper meaning, you just trouble your mind's serenity. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. But because you select and reject, you can't perceive its true nature. Don't get entangled in the world and don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace in the oneness of things and all errors will disappear by themselves. One teacher said, people go from wave to wave looking for wetness, never knowing that they are the ocean. People go from wave to wave looking for wetness, never knowing they are the ocean. And while we're still thinking the answer lies in the wave, in this case the wave a metaphor for experience, it's complicated. You know, we're trying to wait, make the wave the right shape, still it enough, you know. So this one's perfect for me, it's got the right amount of foam on it, it's better than that wave over there. And I had this great wave a few years ago, and it was the best wave I ever had, but I don't know where it's gone, and I'm, I'm still swimming around looking for it, trying to get it back. And this wave has got too much seaweed in it, you know. This is a horrible wave. How am I going to unpick all this seaweed and we chuck it around and it lands back in the water? Searching from wave to wave, looking for that wetness, looking for that marker of our deepest nature, that place where we come to rest, never knowing we're the ocean. The practice asks us to become intimate with the waves, not to reject them because they are too an expression of the ocean. To come to make contact with experience, 
means making contact with the breath, means making contact with the footstep, with the heart, the feelings that arise, with the sultanas, with ourself, with being here, coming to meet the experience directly, intimately. What do we see? What do we see? What what is revealed when we're willing to meet the waves without believing that they're really going to be what does it for us? What we can start to notice as we settle back to see the waves, and that's what we've been doing today. We settle back and we start to see, wow, look at the nature of my mind. Either it's like this, or look at this experience, or seeing this. In that settling back, it's as if we start to trust just a little bit more in resting back into the ocean. Just a little bit more, because it absolutely takes a degree of trust to be able to start to see experience. In the settling back, that which sees the experience, so there's the experience arising and passing through the mind, through the heart, in and around us, constantly there. When we're really caught up in the experience, it feels like we're in a wave being tossed around. We're in the ocean just about to break on the shore. Uh, we're the ones struggling with the seaweed. In that stepping back from the wave, and we practice with the simple things. We're not throwing us into the ocean with the most difficult, painful things that will necessarily arise for us. We also practice with the simple things so that the trust deepens and the courage develops such that we can start to make space for those bigger waves that start to arise in us, around us. But in settling back, stepping back from the wave, that unhooking, that seeing it, seeing aversion move through the mind, seeing desire without buying into it, without rejecting it, in a way we settle back a little further into the ocean. We don't see, we don't necessarily recognize the ocean immediately because we're still focused on the waves, trying to sort it out, you know. Somebody was saying today, working with pain in the body, which has been a feature for a number of you today, saying before lunch, it felt like the pain in the body was doing it to me. Now here was me doing my meditation, being with the breath, pain was arising, and the sense was, it's doing it to me. Did anyone have that experience? He said, after lunch, in the sitting after lunch, there was a shift, something changed. No longer had that sense that it was doing it to me. He said, the view changed, and I had the sense of the pain being more peripheral. There was a way of seeing it with more spaciousness. It didn't mean that it went away, necessarily, but it was seen in a completely different context. It was known in a completely different context. And what happened for that particular person was it gave rise to the sense of, oh, surprise. Surprise that is there for us when we stay with. When that familiar way of seeing where we've almost become dulled or caught in the the particular way of relating to the pain, to our mind, to ourselves, to the sultana, Suddenly we stay with that, we see the unsatisfactoriness of that, we see the suffering of always relating in that way. 
something shifted, something broke. The space opened up and the pain was seen in a completely different way. Shifted the whole view, that sense of being victimized by it, shifted. doorways of freedom seeing in this way where that sense of being able to step back from experience to see it clearly to see its nature and that's what practice invites us towards is to see these waves that I've been tossed around in for so long what are they actually what are they when I see them clearly what are they when I step back what is their nature Being with the breath, we start to be. We start to see as we settle back, seeing it clearly, that it has this nature of coming and going. Has this nature of change. That if we're there, present with the simplicity of breathing, or with a footstep, or with the sensations in the body, being there directly, we see that it's actually in a process of flux. It too is of the nature of the ocean. When we're at loggerheads with it, we don't see that. When we step back from it, we see that it's in flux, it's in movement. It's actually fast becoming something else. We meet it directly. Seeing this characteristic of change very intimately, we know it intellectually that things change. But again, the practice offers us that intimacy with knowing it more, we could say, on a cellular level. Feeling it directly on a cellular level. We see that it's changing. We see that the nature of the wave is that it's coming and going. We see that the nature of the wave, the nature of the experience, is not really mine in the way that I thought it was. Did we ask to have all the experiences that you had today? Did you decide to feel really grumpy or dull or sleepy or miserable or excited or whatever it was? Is it really ours in the way that we think experiences or is it something that actually has its own nature, the nature of the wave when the conditions for that particular kind of wave are there you know, when the weather patterns have come in, when the rain is raining in a particular way, then this kind of wave takes shape. It's completely conditional <coughs> on those conditions. And one of the most important things we see in our practice of being here is that when we cling to any wave, we suffer. When we grasp hold of any particular experience, whether it's the lovely experience and we're holding on and great, had a great moment in the meditation, I'm trying to keep it, how do I make it stay, you know, how do I get it back? There's already the tension, there's already the fear of losing it, 
and the tension of trying to get it back. When it's the difficult experience, again, the suffering when we cling to that, when we make much of that, when we take difficult experience of meaning something about me, or somehow defining who I am. Seeing these characteristics of the wave settling back, settling back, releasing back into the ocean. Where does it leave us? Where does it leave us when we're not defining ourselves by any experience in particular, and yet we're there, we're present, we're connected? Where does that leave you when you don't define yourself by having the right breath, or the best breath, or the wrong breath, or the best experience, or the worst experience? What happens when we don't make much of this constant changing flow of our life, and yet we're there with it? We're there with it. What is it that actually sees that? What is it that actually knows this process of change? What is it, what is that awareness that can actually see this whole array of experiences coming and going? Can we know that? Can we know that that simply knows, that simply sees, that simply rests? back in the more vaster, boundless dimension of our being. The ocean, we could say. And from the quality of resting back, the waves don't have to be stopped. Sometimes we come to meditation, we want to still everything, we want to stop it all. from settling back into the ocean. We don't have to work hard to stop the waves. From the point of view of knowing that we're the ocean, the waves aren't quite so problematic. As one teacher put it, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn how to surf. You can learn how to surf. the courage to practice, to look into the mind, to face the tiger of our mind. Means seeing these expressions of these waves, means at times settling back, knowing the nature of the ocean. And how does this shift our relationship to our life? How does this make a difference? I'll finish with a couple of verses from a poem by T.S. Eliot from the Four Quartet, where he's pointing in a way to the beginning and the end of practice how they work together. 
He said, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. A condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Let's sit together for a moment, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.